Next Thursday, John Jolliffe, who's Bodley's librarian, will be speaking on AACR2 and other errors. The Bodleian Library was the first research library in the English-speaking world to computerize its catalog. But the earliest Christians get the freshest lions. And of course, its computerization program is like no one else's and incompatible with no one else's, and compatible with no one else's. So Mr. Jolliffe has a rich experience in this department. On Monday, the 21st of March, Charles Tannenbaum, who is a notable book collector in town, will be speaking about his ways of contributing money, services, and goods to rare book libraries, which he is uh, spectacularly imaginative in doing. He gives, for example, an annual sum of money to Exeter, the prep school, to maintain an exhibitions program in its library. He gives money annually to Harvard University Library to support staff of the Harvard Library in its own research. Very imaginative giving indeed. On Thursday the 24th of March, Tom Adams, Thomas Randolph Adams, the librarian for many years of the John Carter Brown Library and now John Hay Professor of Bibliography at Brown, will be speaking on 25 years of rare books librarianship from his point of view. This is a new one. On Monday the 4th of April, Michael Crump, who is the assistant editor of the 18th century short title catalog, will be speaking on the ESTC past and future. And the following day, Tuesday, April 5th, Alexander Wilson, who is director general of the British Library Reference Division, the old British Museum Library, will be speaking on problems of incorporating rare book collections into larger general collections. We're lining them up for June. The two that are pretty certain for June are Mina Bryan, who is Mr. William Scheide's librarian at Princeton, speaking about her life as a librarian in the Scheide collection, and Peter Hoare, who is the university librarian at the University of Nottingham, who will be speaking about 18th century public libraries in London. During the rare book school period, from the 11th of July until the 5th of August, there will be two lectures a week, a new departure for us. These will be public lectures. They will be tied to the Rare Book School, but they will be open to the public and especially to the Friends of the Book Arts Press. Those who have accepted so far are William Scheide himself, who will be speaking on his experiences as a book collector during the 15th century session of Rare Book School. Phyllis Gordon, who will be speaking on her adventures as a collector during the 16th century week of Rare Book School. Edwin Wolfe and probably O.B. Hardison from the Library Company of Philadelphia and from the Folger on how to establish and keep furbished an image. Wilman Spawn from the American Philosophical Society on American bookbinding. Marjorie Wynn, the Edwin J. Beinecke Research Librarian at the Beinecke Library at Yale on her life as a librarian at Yale. And then in addition to their duties teaching in rare books school and other weeks besides those in which they have teaching responsibilities, Nicholas Barker and Chris Clarkson will both be lecturing. So it should be a stimulating time. And we hope by then, incidentally, that this room will be air-conditioned, so it will even be a tolerable one. Our pleasure this evening is Alvin Kernan, Avalon Professor of Humanities at Princeton, who will be talking about publishing at the time of Samuel Johnson. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him here.
is a, a, a great pleasure to be here and uh, to have the opportunity to try out uh, some of these ideas on this particular audience. Uh, my interest for some years has been uh, the relationship between uh, uh, critical conceptions of literature uh, and uh, the technology, uh, particularly printing technology and the social structures which underlie uh, that, uh, uh, those literary concepts. And uh, as you'll see uh, from what I have to say a little bit later on, I think that what you're involved in doing is very much a part of this process that I'm interested in studying in some detail. Uh, I have the feeling in looking my lecture over that I have tried to cram perhaps too much into it. And so uh, in an attempt to, uh, to make it a little easier to follow, I might just say a few words first about uh, the exact area in which I'm working. Uh, it is my belief uh, that during the course of the 18th century uh, that the printing business primarily uh, destroyed uh, the old conception of literature or the old literary order as I would put it uh, which had prevailed in Europe uh, from about the time of Dante until shall we say about the time of Samuel Johnson and uh, that as it destroyed the uh, that old literary order it put uh, it proceeded to put a new literary order into place and uh, that order was itself not entirely satisfactory, indeed not at all satisfactory, uh, to most of the writers who worked in it, uh, such as Samuel Johnson, uh, and that they proceeded to reconstruct a new literary order, uh, which we know essentially as Romanticism, which has come down to us to the present day. And what I'm particularly interested in is the way in which in the new situation created by print in London, uh, particularly in the course of the 18th century, a new way of thinking about defining, uh, of creating literature really, uh, was devised principally through the work of Samuel Johnson. And what I want to talk about uh, tonight uh, is one uh, aspect of that change, namely uh, what took place in regards to the text. Um, in a very noted essay, uh, which you're all familiar with, I'm sure, uh, by Walter Benjamin, uh, the German critic, he reasons, uh, that is, this, uh, this essay is titled, of course, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Uh, Benjamin reasons that so long as a work of art remains unique, or is at least limited to a few copies, it maintains what he calls an aura, uh, that is a special authenticity uh, by virtue of a single specific location in space and time and a specific history uh, recorded in its patina and provenance. And through its aura, Benjamin continues, the unique work acquires a cult value, uh, taking its place as a sacred object in a system of authority, secrecy, and magical powers. And as a ritual object in the cult, it absorbs its viewers or its audience through their contemplation of it into the work and thereby suppresses criticism and confers the power of the work on its owner. Once, however, Benjamin goes on, the art object is copied in large numbers, as say, uh, take his principal example, uh, photography uh, and the printing press have copied painting, or as film has reproduced theater. Uh, the aura, uh, says Benjamin, of the original is lost, the cult value disappears into mass art, and every man, because of the familiarity of the object, is encouraged to become first a critic and then a creator who is capable of making his own art. Benjamin, in this famous article, concentrates his attention on camera and film as mechanical reproducers of art. 
but print is certainly the oldest and still the most efficient means of mechanically reproducing works of literary art. We've been told by the historians of the book, uh, Fevre and Martin, or Martin, uh, in their book, uh, The Coming of the Book, that a scribe could turn out an average of two complete manuscripts a year, but that the printers of Europe between 1450 and 1500, a period of 50 years alone, produced between 10,000 and 15,000 different editions of books, which figured conservatively at an average print run of 500, would mean that they produced between five and seven and a half million volumes in this 50-year period. In England, from the establishment of Caxton's Press in Westminster in 1476 until 1640, the printers produced 26,000 different editions, and again at a run of 500, about 13 million individual books. Because the short title catalog is, as you know, not yet available for the 18th century, the number of books uh, printed in England during that time is not as yet known. But all available evidence suggests that it was during this time that the print industry really took off, as the economists would now say. Until 1695 and the lapsing of the Licensing Act, the number of printing houses was limited by law to 20. But by 1724, there were 75 printers in London alone, and by 1785, there were 124. The number of presses and booksellers also increased at the same time, and the expanded market uh, encouraged at this, uh, during this period the development of English papermaking and typebounding. As Terry Bellinger describes the growth of printing in the 18th century uh, in a way which both summarizes what happened and suggests its final consequences. He puts it this way, put in simple terms, England in the late 1790s was a well-developed print society. In the 1690s, we find relatively little evidence of one. Now, the mass of printed books, that is both, and we have to think, I think, both of the accumulated library of the past and the flood of new works that are uh, being printed and produced, uh, this uh, mass of printed books had been stripping the aura from literary text, from text, shall we say, in general, from the late 15th century onwards, of course. I suppose that the printed Bible is the most obvious and spectacular example of the, of the stripping of the aura from a book. But it was not until the late 17th and the early 18th century that, to judge by the evidence, uh, printing uh, by making many identical copies of the same book and producing many books of all kinds transformed books into familiar objects, mere marketplace commodities available to all who could read and owned by many in an age when the number and size of private li libraries steadily increased. The effects of this change on the aura of the classics or the classical texts was publicly dramatized and debated in the famous controversy between the ancients and the moderns. And its meaning for letters was fully revealed and explored in Pope's Dunciad, where print eventually, as you remember, covers the land in the darkness of printer's ink and destroys the old regime of polite letters totally and entirely, taking civilization with it by the end of the fourth book as well. Swift, in his little mock epic written sometime before uh, the Nunciad, The Battle of the Books, published anonymously in 1704, also makes clear, uh, uh, though not perhaps so analytically as Pope's Dunciad, <clears throat> what it meant to strip the aura from the classics. The modern books, which the printing press put on the shelves of the Royal Library in St. James Palace, where the Battle of the Books takes place, 
uh, reveal their hostility to the authority of the classics by directly and openly attacking them, you'll remember. And they threatened to overwhelm them, not only by means of their superior numbers, but by calling the style, the truth, and in some cases, even the existence of the classics into question. Scholarship, encouraged by the accuracy of printed text, undermines the authenticity of the text of Aesop and Phalaris in this case, uh, so dear to Swift's patron, Sir William Temple. Criticism appears in the Battle of the Books to put impudent queries to the revered text of antiquity. And the variety of conflicting knowledge offered by the many new texts makes relative the truth of all texts, old and new. More books, more ways of stating the truth, more truths, more doubts about the old truths and the absolute truth of any given text. Swift was right, of course, in seeing that the number of printed books would weaken the old literary system of polite letters by destroying the aura of its classic texts. But he was wrong, I believe, or of course he was wrong in thinking that the press would produce only some kind of endless printed sludge in which one book was indistinguishable from another. What actually happened was that new ways were found to restore the aura of the literary texts. And the history of modern literature, uh, that is to say, in my terms, from about 1750 to the present time, might well be viewed as a continuing series of various kinds of attempts to, uh, as we would now say, privilege the literary text within the print situation by making it intensely real in ways which distinguish it from all other kinds of more ephem ephemeral, less stable, less ontologically dense text. The integrity of the literary text, figured as a well-wrought urn or as a verbal icon, has by now become one of the central facts of modern literature, of course. Uh, the wholeness, the harmony, the radiance uh, uh, that the literary work has in uh, terms of, uh, of Joyce's famous phrase or T.S. Eliot's uh, famous image of the literary works themselves forming a set of existing uh, of monuments. Uh, the existent, the existent, exist, sorry. <laughs> the existing monuments of culture form, says Eliot, an ideal order among themselves, as if he can actually visualize them out there, monumentalized, perfect, uh, enduring in time. Um, the creation, then, of the needed aura for the printed text, it would be my argument, has been a continuous activity for the last 200 years. Range and uh, the various ways in which it has been done ranges from rare book collections to critical theories which attribute special potency to the literary text. In other words, in my view of things, the enterprise that you are engaged in here is a part of restoring or maintaining an aura for the text in various kinds of ways, and is therefore similar to the activity of criticism itself, which is trying by other means to give a special potency, a special value, a special existence to these particular set of texts. But the, though the process has been continuous, the restoration of aura to the literary text in a print situation really began, it's my argument, with Samuel Johnson, who had no sympathy whatsoever for Swift's view that true letters will be destroyed by print. One time he, he remarked uh, to, to Boswell uh, when being questioned about the number of books that were being printed at this time, it has been maintained, says Johnson, that this superfetation 
this teeming of the press in modern times is prejudicial to good literature because it obliges us to read so much of what is of inferior value in order to be in fashion. So that better works are neglected for want of time because a man will have more gratification of his vanity in conversation from having read modern books than from having read the best works of antiquity. But it must be considered that we now have more knowledge generally diffused. All our ladies read now, which is a great extension. <clears throat> well, once, once print had become the inescapable fact of literature, its technological base, that is, what I mean by this is simply that once the publication or the presentation of any literary work was necessarily within the terms of print, then the aura of the text could no longer be derived from their antiquity or from their rarity, but had to be constructed out of the possibilities that print itself offered. And in order to understand what Johnson did in restoring the aura to the text, uh, which I, I want to give you one specific example, we must first, I think, consider very briefly what opportunities print does offer. Just what it is that print does when it makes a book has, of course, been frequently discussed in recent years. It's uh, been an extremely interesting and an extremely profitable topic for a number of writers. And the results of these investigations uh, have been summarized, extended, and applied in various ways by uh, Elizabeth Eisenstein's recent book, The Printing Press as uh, an Agent of Change. And according to Eisenstein, the principal features of print culture, that is, the, the, the way in which uh, print reality is established, uh, according to her, is one, the wide dissemination of knowledge and its reorganization in different patterns through the spread of the printed book. Two, stabilized printed texts, which replace the indeterminacy of oral performance and the inevitable drift of manuscripts. And three, a rational organization of knowledge fostered by what she calls the esprit de système, of the print shop and the printed book, which she describes in the following way as regularly numbered pages, punctuation marks, section breaks, running heads, indices, and so forth. For the fourth uh, characteristic of this kind of print culture is a steady replacement of corrupted copies with improved ideal editions. And five, and finally, what she calls typographical fixity the ability of books to give to the printed word a durable form and to amplify and reinforce that reality by the distribution of numerous absolutely identical copies. Of course, they're not, they never are quite exactly identical, but they're very close to it, much closer than any two manuscripts ever are. Now, all of these characteristics of print and their consequences interlock, of course. And in considering their effects on the literary text, we can conveniently focus uh, on the quality which seems common to all, it seems to me to be fixity. At every point, as Gutenberg Mann knows so very, very well, the printed book makes the text, that is both the printed page and what that printed page contains, real, solidly, believably there. And what Eisenstein explains with her systematic analysis of the main effects of print uh, on letters is how the distinctive marks of the real in our culture have been impressed on the word by print. The printed press, uh, the printed text, as she shows us, is objectively there. 
It appears frequently in the same form. It, a, any particular text is always the same or is at least moving towards what is considered to be its true form. It is logically structured and it is enduring and durable, all the primary marks of reality in our society. <clears throat> now Johnson, standing as he did at the point of shift from a scribal to a print culture, at least in my argument, understood and phrased very precisely the kind of intensive reality conferred on a text by print and uh, at the same time uh, states his own realization of the difference in a printed, in a printed page uh, and a manuscript. I have had, he says in one of his ramblers, I have had occasion to observe, sometimes with vexation and sometimes with merriment, the different temper with which the same man reads a printed and manuscript performance. When a book is once in the hands of the public, it is considered as permanent and unalterable. And the reader, if he be free from personal prejudice, takes it up with no other intention than of pleasing or instructing himself. He accommodates his mind to the author's design, and having no interest in refusing the amusement that is offered him, never interrupts his own tranquility by studied cavils, or destroys his satisfaction in that which is already well by an anxious inquiry about how it might be better, but is often contented without pleasure and pleased without perfection. That characteristic note of the enemy. But if, says Johnson continues, if the same man be called to consider the merit of a production yet unpublished, he brings an imagination heated with objections to passages which he has never yet heard. He invokes all the powers of criticism and stores his memory with taste and grace, purity and delicacy, manners and unities, sounds which having been once uttered by those that understood them have been since re-echoed without meaning and kept up to the disturbance of the world by a constant repercussion from one coxcomb to another. <clears throat> he considers himself, that is, this reader of the manuscript, as obliged to show by some proof of his abilities that he is not consulted to no purpose and therefore watches every opening for objection looks round for every opportunity to propose some specious alteration. Such opportunities a very small degree of sagacity will enable him to find, for in every work of imagination, the disposition of parts, the insertion of incidents, and the use of decoration may be varied a thousand ways with equal propriety. Johnson, of course, is always recognizing here that there is no absolute rightness to any given text, propriety, as he puts it could equally be well, as he understands so well, it could equally well be written in any number of other ways. But once printed, it becomes somehow permanent and unalterable, and the reader submits to it with a completeness which he will never yield to a manuscript. Johnson's remark that he had personally experienced the ability of print uh, to make its words true probably refers to the occasion when he was working from some kind of crude reporter's notes uh, to produce for the Gentleman's Magazine uh, those writings which we know now as the debates of the Senate of Lilliput, uh, which purported to be accurate renderings of parliamentary proceedings. In Johnson's opinion, the debates bore little resemblance to what actually was said in Parliament, and they were, in fact, of course, fictions which were brought into being by the parliamentary politics of the time, which uh, concealed by law its workings from the public, by prohibiting the publication of its proceedings. 
Um, the result of this, the Johnson's uh, fictional debates, uh, was, however, uh, something that became a new kind of printed reality in a strange way, uh, a, a, a fiction which was considerably firmer uh, than the mysterious oral actuality which presumably underlay it. For Johnson's fictions were, as he tells us, thought genuine, and so well did he write, and so widely read were the various uh, several thousand printed copies of the magazine that various members of Parliament later claimed as their own the speeches which Johnson had composed for them. Johnson, for example, laughed when he discovered in uh, an edition of Lord Chesterfield's miscellaneous works, uh, what, uh, and I'm quoting him now, two speeches ascribed to Chesterfield, both of which were written by me, Samuel Johnson. And the best of it is that they have found out that one is like Demosthenes and the other is like Cicero. <laughs> but this is not the end of the joke, as is so often the case, for to compound the confusion of fact and fiction even further, Johnson could not, according to his editor G.B. Hill, have written at least one of these Chesterfield speeches that he claims is his, since it appears in the Gentleman's Magazine before he began writing for that journal. chair was coming out from under him even as he was pulling it out from under Chesterfield. And Johnson was, though he later laughed at Chesterfield, deeply troubled when he first discovered uh, that his debates were taken for truth. And he, uh, as he says, uh, determined that he would write no more of them, for he would not be accessory to the propagation of falsehood. And this remark, along with his deathbed repentance, uh, this was the last thing, one of the last of his works that he remembered, you, you will yourselves remember, uh, where he said uh, that according to Boswell anyway, that the parliamentary debates were the only part of his writings which gave him any compunction. Now, the fact he should mention it here and several times during his life uh, makes clear, I think, his constant distrust of any kind of fiction which attempts to pass itself off as fact, the standard Johnsonian attitude. There is an absolute distinction between fiction and fact. But underneath this, I think, and this is, I come down to the substance of my argument, Johnson was not at all unwilling to use what I have called the ontological power of print to give its firmness and its durability to other kinds of text. And he did so throughout his lifetime in a number of ways, such as, for example, editing an authentic text of Shakespeare or developing a distinctive print style, the style of being, writing a body of criticism which defined really uh, conferred upon uh, the literary text certain special uh, metaphysical qualities. And uh, a number of other activities as well. The, the, uh, the book that I'm at work on is an attempt to try to show in a great variety of very close and careful ways just indeed how Johnson did create, literally create, a new kind of literary reality during his lifetime out of the opportunities and the possibilities that were offered to him by the print situation. What I want to do now in the time left to me today is uh, simply to concentrate on one example of this, the way in which Johnson gave to the literary text an intense reality, that is to use Benjamin's term again, an aura, or a privilege as we would now say, in assembling his dictionary. The printing of, doc, uh, of, of Johnson's dictionary uh, the history of which I won't recount to you since the details of it are so familiar, tells us that the printing business originated the pro project 
and shaped it in various practical ways. That is, it was a print project from the beginning. It was proposed by booksellers and by printers to Johnson, and uh, uh, they, they managed it and kept it going all the way along. But these surface influences, I think, were only uh, upper-level manifestations of really a much deeper involvement of print with the dictionary. And the dictionary was, in the first place, a very practical kind of workbook, which was needed at this time by the printing business to establish authoritative spellings, and to a lesser degree, to fix meanings which print, with its inbuilt tendency towards regularity, required in its day-to-day -day operations of setting type and editing manuscripts uh, for the typesetter. It was also, that is, the dictionary was also a book which could not have been conceived, literally, if print with its characteristic esprit de système had not made it possible to think of and to produce a systematic arrangement of all the words in the English language. Johnson was simply being very practical when he selected the words for his dictionary uh, out of other books, other printed books, uh, including earlier dictionaries, and established their meaning by copying out printed passages from those books which uh, contained the words that he wished to include in the dictionary. But this simple act of making reveals that the, the, the basic lexicographical, lexicographical idea of a language consisting of a limited number of words, each with a definite and correct meaning, is itself ge generated by a print culture, where over time the book tends to regularize meanings. What Johnson, for example, observed uh, in the preface to the dictionary of the varieties of pronunciation, uh, he said, which will always be observed to grow fewer and less different as books are multiplied, that same observation is equally true of spellings and of meanings. And Johnson's dictionary realized this print tendency, monumentalized it really, to limit, to order, and to fix language in its various aspects. A dictionary, we might say then, is not just another book turned out by the printing press, but is the essential book of print, its Bible even. Uh, at once a uh, supremely useful manual for author, compositor, and proofreader, and at the same time, the very revelation of the nature of print. Well, once the dictionary was done in 1775, uh, 1755, and printed and bound up in the two large folio volumes, it became the English language. And so great is the power of type to create reality that to subsequent generations it has seemed apparent uh, that language is what the dictionary makes it. At first this dictionary, now the NED, which is supplanted it. Uh, and what it makes it is, of course, is a limited number of words ordered alphabetically with correct pronunciations, orthography, derivations, and meanings. In assembling the dictionary, however, Johnson, during this process, in, uh, described for us in the preface to the dictionary, which uh, seems to me at least the most interesting piece of writing on the nature of language uh, in the English tradition, uh, in assembling it, uh, uh, Johnson, uh, the dictionary, Johnson came to understand that the linguistic order, which is there, which is the dictionary, is an imposition on living speech, not simply a record of what is already out there. W.K. Wimsatt uh, pictures the problem and the situation uh, that Johnson faced, I think, in the following way. He's trying to imagine what it was like for Johnson on one of the days up in the attic in Duff Street where he's working away and really doesn't want to be there. 
And uh, Wimsatt says, imagine yourself halfway through Johnson's program of reading for the dictionary, arriving at a page of Bacon's natural history. Which of the words and passages on the page would you mark in black lead pencil for your amanuenses to copy? Which would you pass over? By what norms would you make your selection? How many minutes would you need to reach your decisions on one page? Johnson is himself very sensitive to this same kind of thing. And he describes with great exactitude and feeling uh, the actual psychological turns and twists, uh, the sudden uh, surges of hopelessness at the task, uh, the, the blanknesses of a mind facing and struggling uh, to order something that uh, seemingly has no bottoming. Consider, he says, uh, this is Johnson describing the same situation that Wimstad has in other terms. Consider, says Johnson, that no dictionary of a living tongue ever can be perfect, since while it is hastening to publication, some words are budding and some falling away. A whole life cannot be spent upon syntax and etymology, and even a whole life would not be sufficient. Even um, uh, that he whose design includes whatever language can express must often speak of what he does not understand. That a writer will sometimes be hurried by eagerness to the end, and sometimes faint with weariness under a task, which Scaliger compares to the labors of the anvil and the mine. That which is obvious is not always known and that which is known is not always present. That sudden fits of inadvertency will surprise vigilance. Slight avocations will seduce attention, and casual eclipses of the mind will darken learning, and that the writer shall often in vain trace his memory at the moment of need for that which yesterday he knew with intuitive readiness and which will come uncalled for into his thoughts tomorrow. Now the problem that Johnson phrases here increased intense as he got more and more deeply involved with the actual language which he had so happily and hopefully undertaken to order as he says uh, at the beginning resolved to leave neither words nor things unexamined. But as he be began to work his belief that there was some fundamental order what he calls the fabric of the tongue disappeared. He found neither the Adamic language of earlier linguists uh, words are he says the daughters of earth things are the sons of heaven, nor did he find any laws of historical change, such as those developed by the uh, Indo-European uh, historical philology of the 19th century, nor did he find the langue underlying the parole of uh, modern structural linguistics. Instead, he came face to face with what he himself describes as the boundless chaos of a living speech, copious without order and energetic without rule. Wherever I turned my view, there was perplexity to be disentangled and confusion to be regulated. Choice was to be made out of boundless variety without any established principle of selection. Adulterations were, be, were to be detected without any settled test of purity. Not only, that is to say, was there no existing linguistic order which he could find and record, there were not, this passage tells us in his opinion, even any certain rules for creating linguistic order. Fix orthography, which is one of Johnson's first tasks, might seem relatively straightforward. But when he tried to proceed, he soon discovered that the written language rests on speech and that words which were pronounced differently in various dialects were inevitably spelled differently. Furthermore, the vowel sounds of English are so uncertain that no two mouths ever quite pronounce them in the same way. Some combinations of letters, he says, 
having the same power are used indifferently without any discoverable reason of choice, as in CHOAK and CHOKE, or SOAP, SOAP, and SOPE. And it's impossible, he says, to, uh, to ascertain spelling by means of derivation or etymology, since it's almost never certain whether a word entered English directly from French or from Latin. Finally, the written language is itself filled with anomalies and irregularities of spelling, such as length from long and darling from dear, which have become so deeply fixed by custom that no lexicographer can change them. Johnson does not like these irregularities and these uncertainties, which he calls spots of barbarity impressed so deep in the English language that criticism can never wash them away. But, you know, this is the characteristic Johnsonian situation. He, he is a man of order and reason and rationality, and he wants the world to make sense. But he is also the man of the, probably the, of the most intense honesty of any of our writers. And so when he looks at the situation and discovers that it is not that way, he then proceeds to describe it and to talk about it in these terms. Um, and uh, he does, of course, in the preface to the dictionary, um, describe this linguistic chaos in great detail. Pronunciation, a matter in which he seeks to mark only the primary accent, is in practice various and arbitrary. Etymology is an area in which he was not very strong, uh, particularly in Teutonic languages, are uncertain, and words, he says, which are represented as thus related by descent or uh, coguation, uh, do not always agree in sense. And the question of which words were to be included in the dictionary brought an infinity of words into view. Proper names, technical terms, foreign words, compounds, participles, and other derivatives, archaisms, and even a kind of linguistic limbo where Johnson finds what he calls words of which I have reason to doubt their existence. <laughs> I've always, you know, uh, <laughs> it is, however, when he comes to the matter of definitions, or as he calls them, of course, explanation, that the full difficulties of the dictionary project, of the linguistic project, appear. Meaning crumbles away when he tries to define particles and expletives, of which he says the sense is too subtle and evanescent to be fixed in a paraphrase. And it disappears altogether when he finds words which uh, he says, I cannot explain because I do not understand them. Even in the case of more apparently solid words, the signification, he goes on, is so loose and general use so vague and indeterminate, and the sense is distorted so widely from the first idea that it's hard to trace them through the maze of variation uh, to catch them on the brink of utter inanity. To circumscribe them by any limitations or interpret them by any words of distinct and settled meaning. Such are bear, break, come, cast, pull, get, and so on. And in the end, he inevitably comes to and describes the semantic circle, or as he himself puts it, the necessity that, quote, the explanation and the word explained should always be reciprocal. Explanations, he goes on, are unavoidably reciprocal or circular, as hind, the female of the stag, stag, the male of the hind. <laughs> Sometimes, he continues, easier words are changed into harder, as burial into sepulture, or interment, drier into desiccative, dryness into siccity or aridity, fit into paroxysm. For the easiest word, whatever it be, can never be translated into one more easy. 
Johnson found that in putting the dictionary together, he could not escape from the given linguistic world of a living tongue, living speech, a historical world of men making language and changing it from moment to moment uh, to suit their purposes. This is the world of speech and writing, not the world of language. Vanity, he tells us, affects peculiar pronunciations and meanings. The diction of laborers and merchants is casual and mutable, formed for some temporary or local convenience. Advanced societies have the leisure to increase knowledge and produce new words. Fashion and convenience create terms which flourish and then die. Science amplifies a language with words deflected from their original sense. Translation changes grammar, altering not the single stones of the building, but the order of the columns. The tropes of poetry will hourly make encroachments, and the metaphorical will become the current sense. Pronunciation will be varied by levity or dignity or ignorance, and the pen must at length comply with the tongue. Illiterate writers will at one time or other, by public infatuation, rise into renown, who, not knowing the original import of words, will use them with colloquial licentiousness, confound distinction, and forget propriety. As politeness increases, some expressions will be considered as too gross and vulgar for the delicate, others as too formal and ceremonious for the gay and arid. New phrases are therefore adopted, which must, for the same reason, be in time dismissed. So language in the Johnsonian view is the product of men in history, and is therefore subject to constant mutation to chance, to mere accident, casual interests. If it has any overall direction whatsoever, it's downward. Tongues, he says, like governments, have a natural tendency to degeneration. <laughs> the radical difficulty is deep in human nature itself, as it usually is for Johnson. Most men, he says, think indistinctly, and therefore they cannot speak with exactness. But even if they could, language would still be flawed, for there are many ideas, feelings, and things, which, as he says, are uh, words are insufficient to explain. And in the end, living speech is the imperfect babbling of imperfect men. Sounds, in his most famous passage, sounds are too volatile and subtle for legal restraints. To enchain syllables and to lash the wind are equally the undertakings of pride, unwilling to measure its desires by its strength. But his known nature, of course, was never finally to accept empty so supported as well as coerced by Prince's insistence that the language could and would be fixed, he went on to construct the dictionary, compromising, improvising, even admitting ignorance, simultaneously aware of the futility and the necessity of the work. He laughs in the preface at uh, various kinds of uh, foolish uh, dictionary writers who have gone before him, but really what he does is about as arbitrary and amusing in some ways as what they do. Appropriately uh, for a project of fixing the meanings of language, which was inspired by typographical fixity in the first place, originated and driven by a group of booksellers uh, structured in the systematic ABC style of print and ultimately locked into reality by the printing of the two folio volumes, the printed book provided the necessary locus of language, the place where it existed in a way which permitted careful examination and discrimination. And Johnson frequently refers oral basis of language, but a word was real enough for inclusion in the dictionary only when it appeared in print, and he omitted many words that he had heard or found printed in earlier dictionaries because, he says, I had never read them. And some other words appearing only in dictionaries he admitted because they may perhaps exist, 
though they have escaped my notice. That is, he had never read them. Uh, but there is a possibility that they are printed somewhere other than a dictionary. Not only did print guarantee the existence of a word, it established in Johnson's system its meaning, or its meanings, as well. For Johnson, using uh, a method, borrowed, not invented, uh, considered a particular meaning legitimate only if it could be reasonably derived from a printed context, a passage in a book. And those passages printed in the dictionary in abbreviated, in abbreviated form served to authorize Johnson's definitions and to provide the various shades of meaning which reflected his observation that a language is never still and fixed in words which are hourly shifting their relations. But not all books, Johnson decided, would do as authoritative sources for words and for meanings. Some were excluded because Johnson disapproved of the morality of their authors. The practical considerations of the amount of reading he could cover forced him to narrow the range even further. In the end, he hit on the idea, idea of later described as, quote, poets or those who imagined and expressed indestructible order. There are a few, Robert Browning is the most famous, who have read the dictionary as a great poem, or at least a great anthology of poetry. And there are many others who have seen in the dictionary uh, pronounced poetic qualities such as metaphor, wit, and style. And the book has become uh, a kind of handbook of the wit and wisdom, really, of Dr. Johnson. But I think that the real contribution of the dictionary to literature goes far beyond these local and minor matters to claiming and establishing factually the right of that claim that the English language belongs to its great authors and is recorded in their texts. We take this nowadays so much for granted that there scarcely seems any point in remarking that one of the central facts of our modern literary system is that the literary artist rules language, owns it, maintains its strength, expands its range of possibilities, creates new words and meanings, reworks the tropes, and is, in the end, the ultimate authority on word matters. Poetry has always, of course, been a high verbal art. But the axiom that the literary text is uh, the source of and the authority for linguistic usage and meaning, that language is, this is the real uh, force of the claim, I think, that language is created in the literary text is not, of course, an eternal fact of nature. It is a fact of print culture. It is a concept of print culture uh, that uh, exists between, on the one hand, the older or oral poetry, where we know now, thanks to the research of many scholars, that the poet worked with invariable linguistic units given to him by tradition. And on the other hand, uh, the modern and increasingly influential structuralist views that the literary text is only the meeting point of various languages, in quotes, which transmit themselves through author and text. Language rights, not the author, is the way Heidegger succinctly puts this view, that the literary text is not linguistically privileged, but is only a set of transformations generated by a particular language code. This is not, of course, what Samuel Johnson would have said. This is not what Samuel Johnson did. In the dictionary, Johnson, by choosing a particular group of literary works, the Wells of English Undefiled, as the authority for words and meanings, and validating that authority by locating the absolute meanings of the words in passages from those works, firmly established as fact our taken-for-granted supremacy of the literary text in literary questions, in linguistic questions. Johnson's sense of literature was, of course, somewhat wider than our own, and so he could draw on Hooker 
and the authorized version of the Bible for theology on Bacon for science, on Raleigh for politics, uh, on Spencer and Sidney for the dialect of poetry and fiction, and on Shakespeare, as he says, for the diction of common life. But after the dictionary, literature and its text own language with a certainty which may have been claimed before, but was now, after Johnson, so securely established that it has lasted, as Roy Harris points out, even down to the present day. I'd like to close with a quote from a, uh, a recent review in TLS by Roy Harris, who is himself, as you know, a linguist and much interested in dictionaries. And uh, Harris is reviewing uh, the latest supplementary volumes uh, to the uh, Oxford English Dictionary. And he is wondering, as a modern linguist, uh, uh, just why it is that certain authors are privileged to uh, establish meanings for uh, the dictionary and other authors are not. In other words, the kind of question that Johnson closed off is being opened up again by this particular new kind of linguistics. But I, I read the passage because it demonstrates so powerfully uh, for me uh, the, uh, the, the way in which Johnson had established uh, this authority as fact. Under, this, is, uh, this is Harris uh, speaking in his review. Under Murray, uh, Sir James Murray, the NED editor, under Murray's broad-minded successors, however, literary snobbery continued to pervade the OED and by 1972 had hardened into official policy as regards new admissions. If you happen to be a famous author, you could take the liberty of inventing a word or cribbing one from a foreign language and your boldness was likely to be held to, quote, enrich the English language, however absurd, unnecessary, or tri trivial the innovation. But if you were just a reporter writing for the local paper or a civil servant drafting a document, you apparently had no business introducing new words at all, however useful. This is an editorial policy which will admit almost anything into a dictionary, provided it comes from the prestigious pen of some literary lion, a Samuel Beckett, a Thambia, or a Virginia Woolf, sprolloping. No protest against including fun words in the dictionary is here intended. The point is that the OED's fun has to be sanctioned by literary respectability, and the obligatory route to literary respectability is via the printed word. 